We now turn to the sermon, and the sermon picks up on these themes that we've been talking about in terms of Galatians and having the heart set free. And as we, as we move into this study uh, in the Christmas season, I've been thinking a lot, and the Lord's been putting on my heart this idea of desires. And so I shifted it off of just what we want, and just as we ended Galatians with the desires of the Spirit, I want to put this back into context of the desires of the Messiah. And what does Jesus want? What are the desires of the Messiah, especially what does he want for us in these times and in all times? And so this is the topic, uh, message titled, The Desire of the Messiah, Hope for Hopeless Times. And what I want to look at in the next month or so is to, to concentrate on, on Jesus alone. And that Messiah, we want to look at these themes as, as we look at his, his role, who he is as the Messiah, and all that that implies, and look at his desire. And, and realize as we go through the season that there's a lot of prophecy behind this, and to understand what that means for the Israel and for those uh, beyond the Old Testament into the New Testament. But you realize that he's bringing hope, and that hope is not only prophesied, but it's realized. And something took place in Israel as Jesus would introduce this new kingdom but even so, they rejected that hope. <clears throat> Amazingly, as you read through the book of Matthew, and I would encourage you, if you haven't picked up a book to read for the Christmas season, start with the book of Matthew, because Matthew, more than Luke and John and Mark, talk about the king presents his kingdom. And you'll see more in uh, Matthew as you get into uh, uh, the study about the Messiah. But those who received him, understand the desires of this Messiah. So as we get into this season, it's so easy just to forget. And I don't know if you've been through, uh, you've had your Black Friday and now we got Cyber Monday, but the, the, the question this guy's asking, you mean it's not about uh, me? So Santa Claus is not the focus. And yet so easily with uh, the commercialization of Christmas, we forget this. And so I want to ask Santa a question and ask you the same question. It has to do with this idea as we approach Scripture as believers, but it's a question that you will think about for a minute. Which is more important, faith or hope? How many say faith? How many say hope? How many don't know? How many too shy to admit they don't know? Okay. Well, you can argue as Luther said, the drunk falls on either side of the horse. So you can make your position either way. But I, I believe that hope is more important than faith. Because hope is the ground on which your faith stands. Hope is the thing that really motivates and drives you, gives you the vision, gives you the energy. But without this hope, your faith is hollow or it doesn't have a basis so it becomes a subjective wishful thinking but we know that Hebrew says the faith is the confidence faith is the expectation the assurance of what you hope for and so hope is to be written in on your calendar because you expect that hope to come to pass in time and therefore it's this future orientation we'll look at today about what you don't see. 
there's the requirement of faith to believe what is not in front of you, but to believe what has been promised to you. And therefore, as you get into the topic of hope, you understand that the essential quality of hope is that which pulls us, draws us uh, into the future, and it pulls us out of ourselves into some place, something, some relationship that you didn't necessarily anticipate uh, happening right now. So it's there's something about this idea that the desire, that sense sucked, that that longing, that yearning, that what I want for isn't here yet. It's coming, but not yet. And so there's a lot tied up in this dynamic of hope. But we see if you have hope, there's a lot of things that go with hope. Hope enables us to be patient because you know it's coming. Not like Christmas morning under the kid, under the tree. What time did you guys get up as a kid early in the morning? Anybody get up at four or five? Eat patiently down there before everybody else does. And so, but to be able to wait patiently, wait eagerly. Isaiah, Paul will talk about this. But pay, uh, but hope also helps you become steadfast. That you're you're really not moving off, and so you're fixed on a desire that's coming to pass. And, and, and it's interesting that you have to place, fix your eyes, uh, focus, and it's a deliberate act of the will that you, you cognitively, rationally respond to an objective reality that something is going to happen. It's not just kind of internal feeling of mood lifting and no oh, I hope it's something very practical as you get us as you get into it you you realize that hope will move you from one state into another state if you're hoping for a promotion if you're hoping for a new relationship you 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 leave one and you move into something else and so this idea of hope is it's like a door that you move through and Hosea talked about the valley of pain, the valley of the valley of dis- discouragement, and there will be hope. Well, as we get into this season, uh, a couple things I want to talk about is that Christmas is not a hopeful time for a whole lot of people. As I just read last month, there were more suicides in Japan. Then there were people who were who died of COVID, and uh, there's something about not just the actual disease, but the economic conditions and the stress that's put on. That it was a big issue when we were there; still a big issue. But when you have the economic, and you have the isolation, and you have people pushed to the side, and you think, "I just can't make it," and there is a hopelessness going on. Here in the States, it's the same thing. This is the teenagers between 10 and 24. This was not the way we thought 50 years ago because we have more of a Christian consensus in our idea of stability. But with God not being part of our mindset, you see the rise there in the suicide among the 10 to 24-year-old range. And we've had a couple of things here and even... In, in the congregation, but, but when you start talking about hopelessness, you become paralyzed. 
And you talk about feeling empty. You feel like there's no reason to live, not wanting to end my life or keep going. I want to end my life because I don't know how I can make it. I don't know how. And even if I make it, so what? Who cares? And a lot of people are walking around saying it would be just, it would be better as, as if I weren't here at all because I don't really make a difference. There's, there's so much things, so much going on at Christmas time. And the research says more people try to end their lives in the springtime at the beginning of hope because it's like hope also terrorizes if you don't have the faith to be called out and to say, I can't keep going. So you realize there's all kinds of reasons why we can get into our story, our messianic hope. The message that we bring really is a glorious message. And yet, we kind of take it for granted. And, and I want to mention today, as we start off, is that the reason why we don't think about the Messiah as much is because, one, we have a Gentile orientation. We've lost our brothers from the Old Testament and what they would bring in terms of their dimension and their contribution to say that this is the redemptive history of all of Israel and of all of the world. <clears throat> but the idea of a Messiah, we miss this uh, because when we hear, when we read in the New Testament, we leave the Hebrew and we go to the Greek and we call it Christ. And so we call Jesus Christ as though Christ were his last name. And we have Joseph Christ and Mary Christ, and so this is Jesus Christ. And, and we forget it's not, it's not a name. It's, it's his role. It's his position. But this position as, as, as Jesus as the Messiah was the number one issue that the people would question. Is he really the Messiah? And so what was preoccupying the Jewish mindset doesn't preoccupy American minds. The idea that the Messiah, there's something about that that's just not part of our DNA and our spiritual. Uh, you would hear his haste of this because everywhere Jesus would go, uh, you would hear, is he the Christ? And so it, when you read your Bible, change Christ to the Messiah, and then you'll get a different picture because this is the long-awaited fulfillment of the prophecies. But this Messiah, there were certain expectations and desires and hopes that he would come and do for us. And therefore, the tension in the New Testament about what they expected and what occurred is a fantastic story. If you haven't read the New Testament, and a lot of people haven't read the New Testament, the, the gospel story. They don't know. They have not read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So I encourage you to do that. But I want to go back to the desires of the Messiah. I can go off into some other areas, but we're looking at his desires. And I want you to hear this. When Jesus saw the crowds in Matthew 9, he looked upon and he saw many crowds from many cities, from the Sermon on the Mount to 5,000 to thousands and hundreds of people coming to this doctor for healing. The disease, the blind, the paralytic, the epileptic, uh, people were just sick and oppressed. 
He had compassion on them. He saw people in a way that sometimes we don't see. He had compassion because they were harassed and helpless, distressed and downcast, like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciple, the harvest is plentiful. There are a lot of sheep out there that are lost, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest. But notice it was the compassion that he didn't want to leave people in isolation. He didn't want to leave people under the stress. And he didn't give them medicine. He gave them himself. Notice a couple other passages. Hosea 11.8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. That word changed in the Hebrew, it's really hard to get a hold of. It's like a passionate passionate zeal that's just pounding through the Messiah's heart. And he says, it's turned over. It just so moves him that he can't sit still. Jesus never sat still. He was always on the move, always moving towards people who were distressed and downcast. But all my compassions are aflamed. And here's this desirous Messiah coming to his people. And he comes to Jerusalem. And he says, oh, Jerusalem. And you can hear it in his voice, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you. How often, how often, how often, how often, how often, how many times, how many days Jesus would pass by Israel who rejected him. How many people he looked distressed, how often. I have longed to gather you, your children together as a hen gathers her chickens, her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. You were not willing. Disappointed for sure, longing for certain. But, but the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is long-suffering. He's patient, not desiring, not wanting, not longing anyone to go on their own, a sheep without a shepherd, and then end up in a thicket where they perish. But everyone, he wants everyone to come to repentance. And so Isaiah would say, this one, this Messiah, he is my servant, whom I uphold. Again, notice the heart. God loves Jesus. This is my chosen one in whom I delight. And the Father loves the Son so much and I will put my spirit on him and he will bring the justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the failing to fire. And a bruised reed. Failing to fire smoking in depression. 
he will not break. The smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. This Messiah wants so much. And he's not stomping until he moves towards the goal of getting it. Jeremiah 31.20, Is not Ephraim a precious son to me, a delightful child? Though I often, I often speak against him because the whole story of the Old Testament is the unfaithfulness of Israel. And, and God does not take his cue from our unfaithfulness. He takes his cue from the faithfulness of his son. I speak against him. I, I remember him still. Notice the heart. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. The person that's really distressed and downcast doesn't understand the, the, the bursting heart of Christ, ready to unleash a love and mercy towards them because he's at war. And therefore, at Christmas time, at Christmas time, of all times, is a time we talk about hope. And hope is, is in one sense, a terrifying thing because if, once you open yourself up to hope, can you trust it will be fulfilled? That's a real tension. We, we fear hope because I don't know if it's going to come to pass, and that's the basis of anxiety. But how many times did that great theologian, you've, you know that intelligent man who said these two words, fear not. Linus, that th you, you don't know that, you haven't read his theology. But he picked up on something that the angels always understood. When the angels spoke to Joseph and Mary, when Gabriel came out, what was his words? Do not fear. Do not be afraid. And fear and hope go together. In the sense that hope, as love will cast out fear, so does hope pull out of fear into a different position. And so there's something of the nature that, that really addresses that. And therefore, to understand what hope does, the nature and the dynamic of hope, as you look how it works, hope does something. If you have hope, you can't be the same. Because what hope does is it regenerates your spirit. Hope does something that lifts, lifts you up out of your condition to something outside of your condition, outside of your experience, outside of the immediate culture, because there's something more than what you can see. It's way down the road. And therefore, this externalizing, moving out of your condition in one sense. But two, there's something happens on the inside. That if you have hope, there's a shift. And all of a sudden, in a moment, when you were in despair, in repentance, you find yourself, I can move towards into the despair because I have hope beyond the despair. Hope also sees reality as it is. It's bad, but, it, but Jesus is better. And so you have both eyes opened, wide open, because you know the grace and mercy and compassion are there. And also, it's always future-oriented. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
Okay, well, if we know that, then we don't have to be like the Gentiles who are running here and there, and because we have a Father we know knows our needs, and therefore we can move towards Him thinking He'll do what's right by me. He's, he's for us. But if you have hope, it's very practical. Because if you're planning to go on a trip, you begin to buy things and, and prepare uh, your clothes, and, and uh, as we did before the washing machine broke down this week. But, but, but I was anticipating moving to go be with my family, with Sandy and others, and, and therefore I made steps, practical steps, because I know this is going to happen when I get home. It's very practical, hope is. But I want to go back to the Messiah. And I want to introduce one thing as we, uh, as we move into this topic. And I stole this, I mean borrowed this, from uh, Alistair McGrath, who in his book on the introduction to theology, talking about uh, Israel and Messiah, he introduces a guy that I hadn't heard about, and I'm sure you haven't heard about him either, uh, Genevan theologian Francois Turretin. And he was a prolific writer, and he was the one that had a great influence on Augustine. So you go back in church history, and you think people have thought about these things before, and you can learn. But one of the things that Turretin did, when he talked about the Messiah, he was able to put up these three roles of the Messiah that we talk about today as those. Well, we know, we're more familiar with them. But he talked about the threefold ministry of the Messiah. And you know these roles as prophet, priest, and king. When the Messiah would come, he would be a prophet like Moses predicted. He would be the priest, the son of David, and it would sit on the throne as a king. And these three are the categories of the ministry of, of Jesus Christ. And you'll see this. And, and, and I want you to think about this because we think about Jesus as being the Savior, and he is, of course, but we don't have this Jewish mindset of these three categories. We don't think about prophets and era, and we don't, we don't it's because we're Gentiles in a 2020 era, and we don't, we don't, it's just not there. But I want to encourage you to add to your prayer life, add to your devotional life, add to your thinking. When you think about Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, you're talking about the Messiah. And what he does is this. This threefold ministry addresses the threefold misery of humanity, fallen humanity, because we need a prophet because we're ignorant. And the prophet is the one who begins to explain God to us because our ignorance, we're in the darkness. And as I said, Isaiah would say, the people sitting in the land, sitting in darkness, they saw a great light. This Messiah would come in and explain to Israel the hope, the, the, the desire for the Father to be known. So, but in our ignorance, we would not hear the prophet and as a result, we would go do sin and incur guilt. And therefore, we needed a priest who not only would empathize with our weaknesses, but one who would understand about forgiveness 
And in this Messiah, we certainly have one not only who would not only understand, but would go and achieve for us the assurance that your sins would be removed. Ignorance. Guilt. But we have a hard time with this third one. We need a king. And what does a king do? A king goes to battle. A king fights. A king rules. And what does he come to do? He comes to fight our sin, the bondage, the oppression that keeps us in a hopeless state of despair. The three roles of this prophet, priest, and king uh, brings from the prophet a basis for faith. Didn't God say, and will he not make it good? Of course. And so the hearing of the word gives faith, and that faith is based on the hope of promise. And then with the priest, you get the, the full assurance that you're still accepted. You are forgiven. And these sins won't define your relationship with me. I will have compassion. But that king brings the freedom. And that freedom from the oppression, the freedom from the darkness, the freedom from, from this, this crazy sense of, am I good enough? Will God want me? Will he throw me away? This is what the Messiah will do. Prophet, priest, and king. And as he does so, he removes this bondage and ignorance and guilt. That's what the Messiah does. And therefore, when you come into the New Testament, what the Jewish people were understanding and wanting was how this prophet would bring light that would scatter that darkness of our own foolishness. Because we're walking without God, we think we can go to other gods and somehow make it work. No, 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 said the prophet. No, no, no. The mercy of the priest removes that sense of I've really messed it up so much. There's no flame left in my candle. I'm smoldering. No, no, no. It's okay. You've been reconciled. And with the power of the king, death itself. If God will conquer death through the resurrection of Christ, won't he conquer anything that would cause that death? That word, the wages of sin is death. But the weight of that word of the king overcomes any sin to bring you back. The prophet shows God to us. The priest leads us to God. And the king joins us together with God and glorifies us with him. The prophet illuminates the mind by the spirit of enlightenment. The priest comforts and soothes the heart and conscience by the spirit of consolation. Isn't that great? Our king then moves to subdue rebellious inclinations of the outside and inside and restores by the spirit of transformation. That's what the king does. This is what the Messiah does. And, and that's why Jesus understood very clearly his role as Messiah when he introduces his message in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Notice this, to, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Prophet, proclaim good news. 
priests. Get involved with the poor, the captives, and the king, the anointed one. This one has all authority on heaven and earth, will release the oppressed, address the demons, and bring you to freedom. This is the Messiah. This is what Israel was hoping for. And yet, this anointed one, anointed, set apart as a sacred one, it has the idea of, of not only taking the oil and, and rubbing it in as though there is a, an, an ointment, a soothing a cure, but there is an anointing means this is the one recognized publicly by everyone. And therefore, as you go into the idea of the New Testament, the Jewish people said, is this the Messiah? Well, how do we know? How do we know this is the Messiah? And again, anchoring it in the New New Testament, based on the Old Testament, it was all tied to this kingly role of David. In the Old Testament, the messianic hope was tied to the royal line of kingship. And therefore, he's called the son of David. See, he's riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's not a bully, a celestial bully. He's not a domineering CEO. He's a humble king bringing you his desires to set you free. But make no mistake, he is also a warrior king. And as a warrior king, as John writes, he judges and he makes war. The spirit sets his desires against the flesh, and the flesh will set its desires against the spirit. Jesus is coming to make war, and that war is with anything that's evil or that will block your heart from loving him. So he's after, he's on the move. And therefore, we sing as the angels would sing, as they would watch. Watch him. Here comes the Messiah. Look at him. Here he goes. God's doing it. And this is the joy they would announce. How great is their joy. And we sing that. How great is ours. But as I conclude this, I just want to point out, in developing hope, what you want to do is think and pray about this. You want to pray God's desires for your life. And so develop this understanding. Lord, what is on your heart for me? What is on your heart for us? What is on your heart for the nations? What is on your heart? It's not about me. It's about his desires. And then recognizing his desires, it's a call to repent and turn away from those things I long for instead of Christ. And turning to Christ, I would say, as David the king would say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm satisfied. Depending upon the threefold prophet, priest, and king role that Jesus does, not just as a humble, approachable, street-level king, but a mighty warrior. He'll fight for you. Then you understand that Alone in Christ, whether it's not the battle, it's not his blessing, it's not the circumstances changing, it's not, it's Christ alone, and that he's called you by name, and you walk with him, 
because you're a Christian and you follow this Messiah. You follow this Christ. And as you follow this Christ, you understand you're no longer distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. You have the shepherd Messiah. And therefore rejoice. And pass the news on. Because without you passing one sheep to another sheep, the other sheep won't hear. Because they're in war. Therefore, as we go into this season, I want to have you fix your mind on the role of the Messiah King looking at you, wanting you, calling you to rejoice and celebrate. And for that, you need to prepare your heart, which is what the Second Advent service is all about. It's about learning how to really meet and prepare to meet this great Messiah King. And as we go through this Advent season, I would encourage you to spend a little time each day going to the book of Matthew and look at the Messiah. Look at what he does. And look at that prophet, priest, and king, the warrior moving. You are constructed in our imagination, but you are from the realms of glory. And therefore, Father, we lift up our hearts to you because you're passionately bending down towards us. Thank you for this little one coming. Thank you for this little one becoming our king, our prophet, our priest. So, Lord, as you prepare us this, this month, as we move into celebrating the freedom that's ours in Christ, may you be pleased by having the full reign and access to our hearts. Again, Father, we want to learn from your Spirit to be led by your Spirit into this season. So we thank you for all these things, and we love you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.